Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. I would like to pay my respects to the First Nations elders past, present and future. And today we have a guest, Rowena Lennox. And Rowena has written a book called Dingo Bold, The Life and Death of Gari Dingoes. Rowena is in the in the office, as it turns out, with me this afternoon, and I'd like to introduce her to the show. Hi, Bede. Thanks for having me on the podcast. That's fine. Um, Rowena, your background is in book editing for about more than 20 years, and you have a PhD in creative writing from the University of Technology in Sydney, and now do some mentoring as well in creative writing for writers, and you have had this book published by the Sydney University Press. Could you give the audience some background into your professional life and how you came to write this book? Yes, sure. I um, I studied arts at, as an undergraduate and um, majored in English literature, and uh, I always wanted to write. Uh, and when I um, finished uni, I went and worked in publishing companies. So I worked in-house for an educational book publisher and an academic book publisher and a trade book publisher. And I went freelance in the the late 90s so that I could work on my first book. So I had the time to (laughs) juggle to work on my first book, which was a biography of an East Timorese priest. Um, And I kept on freelancing. Um, I was involved in editorial training and I I taught editing to university students um, as well as uh, ghostwriting Kirsty Sword Gusmau's uh, memoir with her um, and, you know, just kept on doing freelance editing. Um, and it took a, another 20 years for me to write my next book, which is this one, Dingo Bold. Um, I started a PhD in creative writing um, in 2014 where I was able to, you know, research this book and um, write it as part of the university, which was really helpful because the structure um, was really stimulating. The program and my, my supervisors were, um, you know, it was just great to be able to do it with such wonderful supervision as well. Mm. Now, how would you like this book described? A few things I've noted about it when reading it are firstly, it has epigraphs which often have songs or references from sort of more modern pop culture. It deals with historic events. It has a personal trail running through it, and it also has, I suppose you would say, very, very lively parts of the of the narrative where it almost becomes almost poetic, very, very moving in the words, and other parts are very scientific and very descriptive. And you also introduce people and even have dialogue and conversations with people you come across. How would you describe the book? Yeah, I, I describe it as nonfiction, um, the blanket term, um, and it does cross genres. When I was writing it, I uh, I had a working title for it, um, Dingoes and People, an Emotional History, and then as I was working more on it, I changed it to Dingoes and People, a Personal, Partial, Eclectic and Emotional History. Um so I thought of what I was writing as personal essays, I guess, and um, I wanted to be there as the narrator because I thought that was the most honest way to tell the story. And um, there's, I, I put the science in because I think it needs to be in there because it has had an immense impact on the way we regard dingoes, you know, the way we think about them and, and the, the science that um, has come out about them. The history I put in because I think it needs to be there as well because dingoes are historical. I mean, I would call them historical agents. Um, not not everybody would probably go so far as to say that, but they've played such a such an important role in um, contact history between Indigenous and settler Australians. Um, they they really are, and I'm still working out this idea more. But how they're, they're kind of cultural mediators in a way, um, and. Um, yes, the the songs and um, extracts that I use in the epigraphs were just they. I guess they were kind of oblique ways at coming at things when I when I couldn't fit the whole idea into prose. Um, 
of course, I was obsessed by dingoes um, while I was writing the book. And, um, you know, my obsession is under control now, but um, I, I, I'm still flaring up <laughs> intermittently. So everything fed into the dingo furnace, really. Um, songs you'd hear and you'd go, yes, that explains how I felt where, where you know, I hadn't found the words myself to to, you know, to say how I felt when the dingo approached me on the beach or, you know, other people's wisdom, I suppose. Like one of the epigraphs comes from Barbara Chikatu, who was um, one of the Aboriginal trackers um, who tracked dingoes after Azario Chamberlain disappeared at Uluru in 1980. And, you know, it's a very simple statement, but it, it, um, it compresses a lot of knowledge into um, just a few words. Um some of them come from Kafka, who um, wrote an amazing, it's a story uh, called Investigations of a Dog, which I think speaks a lot about um, domestication. I think that's the theme of that. Mm. Um, it's longish short story. So, yeah, there were just snippets that I found all around me, you know, poems and little bits of dialogue from novels and ways people had of putting things that really seemed to speak to what I was trying to express in the chapter. Yeah, okay. And to begin discussing the book, two two points I would like you to clarify. The first is with Gari, also known as Fraser Island, is is the name Gari now, is it going to be taken over, become the actual proper name of this place in the same way it would now be unusual for people in Australia, well, I hope it is, to refer to Uluru as Ayers Rock, or is it something else? That's a really good question. I I believe it it might become the name for the island. I mean the 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 bachelor were granted native title to the island um, several years ago, and they call it Gari. Um, so I, I it's still referred to as Fraser Island. Like I think it's still people understand um, what you mean when you say Fraser Island. But increasingly, it is being referred to as Gari, and I guess it's just a matter of time. I'd have to um, put my ear to the ground more um, on the island and, you know, with the Queensland authorities, I guess, that um, make these decisions. But I, I I, think that's probably the way it's going to go. Mm. Um, and it's a big place, isn't it? It's, it's actually huge, Fraser Island. Yes, yeah. It's about 125 kilometres long, I think, and about 25 kilometres wide. It's a long narrow island um, that it lies very close to the coast where it, at, at its closest point at its southern tip and then it sort of juts out um, to the north, you know, a long peninsula to the north. Yeah, I think it's about 180,000 hectares, 160 or 180,000 hectares, yeah. And one other thing about the island, the geography of it, could you say a few words about that? Because it's, I, in my mind, I always thought of Fraser Island as being a place where it's sandy and you can bring a four-wheel drive. But from the book, it's actually a lot more complicated. It has a lot more complicated vegetation and mountains and even I think you might refer to even some lakes and things like that on the interior of the island. Yeah, it's an incredible place. It's, as you said, it's made out of sand. So it's, it's, it's completely sand. But on this sand grow rainforests and um the lakes it's got these beautiful freshwater lakes there there are different kinds of lakes so perched lakes and other sorts of lakes but um amazing freshwater lakes all over the island streams there's there's plenty of water on the island so it's quite unusual for for an Australian environment, I guess, um, you know the water is so clear in these streams that you can't even see it. You look straight across to the to the sandy bottom, yeah, and they they run to the sea, and so it it's been a source of timber for, for um, uh, non Indigenous Australians um, started taking timber off in the eighteen um, hundreds. Uh, cattle were grazed there, and horses were were grazed there. Um, and it, sand was mined there in the 20th century as well. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's it's a unique place, a really um, very hard to get around, very hard to walk on the sand. Um, you know, I, I visited there a long time ago and thought, oh, we'll, you know, we'll put on our backpacks and go hiking, but yeah. you, you can't get very far or very fast on sand. So, and and you really do need those four-wheel drives. The, the tracks are sandy and quite eroded and some of them are quite soft um the beach is 
better to drive on, but then if the tides come up, you can't pass. You know, there's certain points that stick out, rocky little points that stick out into the water that you can't pass if the tides come in. So, um, you know, you're really constrained by the natural environment there and, of course, um, expanded by the natural environment too, mm. I guess. Um, the next question this isn't meant to be a philosophical question, but it might sound like that. The question is, what is a dingo? <laughs> How long have you got? Well, it, a, a dingo is um, a canid, so a, a member of the family of canids that includes dogs and includes wolves. Um, and it's an canid that's been living in Australia for thousands of years um, in isolation from other canids and they think until, um, you know, settlers arrived in 1788 and or, or Banks, actually. Banks came with Cook in 1770 and apparently he had greyhounds. So, you know, or, or whether any of the ships that hit the west coast of Australia had dogs on them, you know, and those dogs escaped and lived with dingoes. But dingoes have lived in Australia for thousands of years. No one's sure exactly how long and nobody's sure exactly how they got here. Um, they don't. They didn't evolve here, like they're not like kangaroos and um, the other animals that evolved here. So there's various theories about how they arrived in Australia. Um, some, you know, some people assert that they came with people in watercraft, and they may have been brought as food for the voyage. And then when they got here, they kind of went and expanded and and inhabited the whole continent of Australia. Other people think they may have crossed a land bridge um, when Australia was part of the Sahul continent, um, you know, before the last ice age or, you know, when the water level was lower. Um, so what they are now, and all these ideas about how they got here also affect what people think they are because um, some people think they are a domestic animal that has gone wild or gone feral, and some people think that they have never been domesticated. Um, we know that they lived very closely with Aboriginal people, so when um, sort of 19th century, 18th century observers came, dingoes were living in camps with Aboriginal people and were regarded as part of the family, were treated like kin. Um, but the relationships with Aboriginal people were quite various across the continent of Australia. So, you know, in some people ate them, some people didn't eat them. Um, it, it was, you know, not uniform at all, um, Like just like First Nations um, societies aren't uniform. Um, so what are they? They are a um, – they – there's theories now that they're the apex predator or the top of the food chain in Australia, um, which it's a very hierarchical way of putting things, but they, on land, I mean, crocodiles would be the top of the food chain in their environment and then um, dingoes would be the top of the food chain. So they they have quite a lot of effects on other pre other what they call meso-predators like foxes and cats. You know, they, um, they think that dingoes affect how foxes and cats behave. Um, they... They only breed once a year, which um, makes them different from domestic dogs because domestic dogs can breed twice a year. So dingoes only breed once a year in winter, usually. Uh, they they eat a lot of meat, but they eat anything. I mean, they on on um, gari, um, they'll fish, they'll eat oranges, they'll eat, you know, like they'll the whale. You talk about yes, the whale. yes, yeah. They're sort of opportunist opportunistic scavengers, I guess. Um, and of course, on gari, um, they uh, eat people's food as well, so they'll eat M and M's or um, roast meat <laughs> or whatever they can find. Um, they live in groups. They they have a society, uh, so they um, they live in family groups usually, where one pair breed and the other members of the group cooperate to help raise the young. And they usually live in defined territories that they defend. Um, so there's a few things we know about what they are. It's still not decided. Like um, there's been discussion about what the scientific name for the dingo is. Mm. You know, is it Canis familiaris dingo, which would imply that it's um, like a dog, familiaris, um, you know, a domestic canid that's gone wild or gone feral? Is it Canis lupus dingo, so lupus from the wolf, you know, that it's um, 
n- not a domestic animal or, or 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 another school of thought wants to call it Canis dingo, which mm. you know sort of avoids those um, decisions about the domestic dog or the wolf and and some takes some of the value judgments out of it, I guess as well. And so does that mean a dingo differs from a dog breed? It's not the difference between a dachshund and a whippet. It's something else entirely? Yes, I think it does. Even though there's so much variety among dog breeds, I think it's one of the, you know, like you you can have a chihuahua, you can have a St. Bernard, you can have a dachshund, you can, you know, you can have an old English. Yeah, the dogs are so wildly various. But a dingo... Um, does differ um, because a dingo has to survive in the wild. So um, they've evolved to be able to survive in the wild, to not need a lot of water. Um, Their chests are often quite narrow and their heads are quite broad so that the widest part of them is their head. Um, I guess where the people who do these sort of studies find the most differences is in their cranial morphology, so the shape of their heads and the, the length of their snout and the size of their teeth and just that they've got these broad heads. Um, I, th- I think that's where it's, it's very hard to tell a dingo from um, some forms of uh, domestic dog. Like um, dingoes have a great variety of coat colours, you know, they can be that golden colour that you think of. They Also a good percentage of them are um, black and tan. That's not an unusual dingo coloration and some of them are white. Um, there were white dingoes on Gari. Um, no black and tan dingoes on Gari. But, I mean, I've heard percentages like 30% are black and tan and, you know, maybe a smaller 3 or 5% are white. Um you know, they're doing a lot of work on dingo genetics, but they can also be brindle, like a lot of colorations that people once thought were wild dogs, so they're, you know, more domestic dogs, you know, brindle, that sort of coat color where it's got, mm. a, you know, flecks of black or white through it kind of stripes. Um, you know, you can have brindle dingoes or, you know, dingoes with a lot of dingo makeup, you know, a lot of dingo genetic you know, the proportion of dingo genes in them is, is very high and, you know, they can be brindle. So it is quite a vexed question is separating a, a dingo from a domestic dog. But, yeah, dingoes dingoes are different. I mean, they, they howl, um, but they can also bark and they snuff bark and they make various vocalisations. Um, it's, it's, um, they do bark sometimes. It's not that they never, never bark. Mm. And this isn't in your book as an epigraph, but you've got a, a quote nonetheless from Duke Ellington, where he refers to um, he he refers to to the highest form of genius as being beyond category. And I thought that was quite apt because it's almost as though they are like these improvising dogs of some sort, and, and so the jazz connection seemed quite relevant. Oh, I'm so glad you noticed that, and <laughs> I'm so glad you liked that. Um, yeah, I agree. Like, why can't they be beyond category? Um, I mean, I guess we need to categorise things, but they, they, part of their um, troubled relationships with humans, I think, is because they do def- seem to defy categories. You know, they won't just um, do what humans think they should do, and that that they are, you know, the highest form of genius, as, as Duke Ellington thought, was being beyond category. Um, I think it really applies to them. You know, because they can be pets, and and clearly they've they, some of them like people. You know, they've they've had they've lived they've had relationships with Aboriginal people for over a thousand years, probably longer. But just because of the archaeological evidence, you know, you, um, that you, you you know they've I've read sort of some you know articles, refereed articles that put it you know have found dingoes living in in places with humans dingoes that needed feeding so there was clearly a domestic relationship dingoes um you know um that are a thousand years old dingo you know on the south coast of new south wales buried with people um yeah and they can live wild and they can live in states in between i, I think our words um are a bit inadequate um to describe you know tame or wild or mm. camp dingo or you know domestic isn't probably the same thing as what we'd think of with a dog that we'd have as a domestic pet because I think dingoes would claim their right to wander and their right to hunt even if they did decide to live with a person. Now, any book about dingoes, I guess since the 1980s, has to start where your book starts, Azaria Chamberlain. It seems to 
draws so much of Australia into it. It has a a child dying, unfortunately, a dingo, which is, a, as we've just said, a, a mysterious animal at what is a an overpowering place, Uluru, and then a media circus, injustice, just, just the, the local Indigenous people seem to have been ignored in their views once the child was missing about what to do and what may or may not have happened. I think you talk about some people whose views were not even really taken seriously by the police and things like that. Could you explain why that was the place to start this book? Yes. Well, um, I didn't write that part first. I I wrote it later, but it was, um, uh, of course, it had to be written. It had to be um, uh, talked about. And also because even now people are still undecided or, or have decided various things. Um, when I was researching dingoes, a lot of the dingo experts said, yes, this is, yeah, this is what happened. You know, it, it, dingo's capable of this, a dingo would do this. Um, but still people I talk to, like family and friends, would say, oh, no, she did it, you know, or um, people people who very uh, knew a lot about the legal system uh, would say, but there wasn't enough blood. <laughs> and it was as though people were baying for blood, you know, when um, Lindy Chamberlain, Azaria's mother, Azaria was the baby who went missing from Uluru and Lindy was her mother who was jailed for her murder. Um, so it it really divided Australia. Everybody had an opinion. I, I guess I grew up with it as well. And, um, you know, we made dingo jokes and we, um, which I guess is a way of you trying to, um, bring a situation that you don't know anything about into control a bit sometimes when when you make jokes about things. And I, th- I'm, I mean, I think what happened is so horrible to think about as well that a baby could have been taken by a dingo in that way. Um, it's just a it's unbearable to think about. So maybe people were trying to think about other alternatives for for what happened. And of, you know, of course, there were terrible miscarriages of justice. Um, so it hasn't gone away. I don't think the Azaria Chamberlain story's gone away because people still think Lindy did it, even though the the most you know the the inquest in two thousand and twelve, the Northern Territory coroner, you know, did say emphatically, you know, uh, the you know cause of Azaria's death was that she was taken, and you know, taken by a dingo. Um, and 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 the the dingo ambivalence is still with us with us too. I think. Um, that there's this animal that we want to think is familiar. They they look like dogs sometimes, and we want to think we understand them, and you know that they wouldn't do that, or they would do that, or however, you know, we think they live. Um, but we still have a lot to learn mm-hmm. as well. Just as back in you know 1980, when um, the the dingo experts were called in, and and um, they thought that it was. Um, possible but improbable or something that a, a dingo would have taken a baby even even though you know it was perfectly clear everybody at the campground that the people who ran the the campground the rangers there were saying you know that there's the dingoes are there'd been several lots of dingo attacks and lots of um near misses um yes mm. um if we then shift a couple of thousand kilometers to Fraser Island, or I'll keep on to put say the K first. I've got to actually now look at the word Gari, and you talk what the book talks about your journeys to Fraser to Gari. One of the interesting aspects of that, and a lot of the book builds around this, is this code system that the Queensland Wildlife Service has for dingoes. I think it's from A to E or something or other about the the dangerousness of each particular dingo or the dingo pack. Could you talk about the way in which dingoes are managed on the island? Yes. So um, on the only other time that's recorded in settler history that a, a, now there's been a fatality from a dingo um, happened in 2001 when a, a child was um, mauled by dingoes and and bled to death. So um, so after that time, this incident reporting system was put into place. And as you say, it was the A to E. So um, people were encouraged to report negative incidents to a park ranger. 
and then a park ranger would create an incident or interaction report and all any incident that was reported would be coded from A to E. So A was really like nothing happened at all and B is very um, inconsequential, I guess. C is like when a dingo loiters around somewhere where um, people are. are. So um, D is more serious, so um, might involve ripping tents to get food. And then an E is a nip or, um, or a, you know, I guess a dingo makes contact. I mean, there's a, I mean, it's very hard to code incidents, I think, um, and I guess they, they do revisit them. Um, when I interviewed one of the rangers, Linda Berendorf, she said, you know, they'd had advice about how to, how to sort of separate a, a, a code D from a code E when, you know, because you're trying to judge what a dingo's intentions are when they go to do something. So does the dingo intend to nip or does it not intend to nip? And, and that, you know, changes where it's coded in this um, sort of scale of severity of the incidents. Um, the language of the incidents reporting is, I think, needs a rethink. Um, so dingoes are reported for loitering, um, or soliciting food. So if you know if somebody's eating uh, prawns on the beach, and a dingo's standing nearby, that that they could get a had an incident interaction report for soliciting. Um, if they take um, items from a campsite, they're stealing. Um, these, which I, I think is probably not the right sort of language to talk about a free ranging animal like that. They're very human words you know they seem to come from a criminal justice system <laughs> even an outmoded criminal justice system um and they're very um it's it's all about the dingo behavior so a human can give a dingo a steak and the dingo gets an incident incident report they have started fining people for feeding dingoes and i i read reports that they're really trying to you know discourage people from feeding dingoes because that means the dingoes of course are going to go and look for food from people um so you know that's a good thing that i think that the humans are starting to see their role in these interactions between dingoes and humans but the dingoes are still expected to sort of conform to these human ideas about how they should behave and and the interaction reports um are very much part of that system you know making a dingo behave and once a dingo gets a lot of interaction reports, it's um, it's regarded as a problem dingo. So, it, of course, it gets more attention then. Um, the dingo that I wrote about, uh, he was collared um, because he'd become a problem dingo. So they put a collar with a, a satellite navigation instrument on it and, you know, to ostensibly sort of follow him where he went so that people, you know, so that the rangers knew where he was and if he was creating trouble. But it also, I guess it's also, it stigmatises him as well and, you know, people immediately see the collared dingo and and um, think he is trouble. Yeah, um, the, the rangers liked this system. They wanted, because it, it is, it's better than, um, you know, it's, I guess it's more data, it's uh, more uniformly organised data, um, so they could rank the interactions and go, well, this dingo's only had C-level interactions, you know, this dingo's not a problem, this dingo's had E-level interactions. I mean, it's, often it's hard to identify which dingoes are doing um, doing things because they, they have ear tags but the ear tags are hard to see. I I mean, when Bold, who I nicknamed um, this dingo Bold, he approached me, I mean, I knew he had a coloured tag in his ear but I couldn't have said what colours they were, you know, like my my adrenaline was all going. I didn't really, um, I couldn't, it just was a pattern. It wasn't um, anything I could have um, described later. But um, so that, you, you know, people are meant to identify dingoes by their ear tags. Not all dingoes are ear tagged, only the ones that are they think are likely to interact with people. Um, they, they would prefer them not to be tagged and not to be visible and not to be anywhere near people. But this pack that live at Eurong, have lived at Eurong for generations and it's part of their territory and mm. Eurong just happens to be also a, a major sort of tourist centre and, um, the you know, a place where people live. So um, the dingoes have sort of learnt to, learnt to live with people and learnt to try and use that to their advantage as well, yes. I guess. The book 
is in a sense a lot of your journeying around Fraser Island, looking at the dingoes, talking about them, meeting people on the island, some of the interactions between them. And could you talk about, just give us some background into that, that, that whole middle section of the book, how that came about and what, as the author of the book, you were trying to convey to the reader? Yes, yeah. So I, when I started, I thought, well, I'm not an expert um, in dingoes. I'm going to have to talk to people who know more than I do. I started the book because I loved my dog and she was a Kelpie cattle dog and um, and then I expanded it um, to write an essay about dingoes for, for an essay competition that wanted to, yeah, that's her, Zephyr, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I knew I had to talk to people um, and I thought Gary was just going to be one chapter of what I was doing. I thought, you know, I'd try and do a continent-wide approach, but Gary was just so interesting. And when I, my first um, trip there was to attend a forum where people were talking about, they had um, a, a few farmers talking about dingoes and they had a few conservationists talking about dingoes. And it was really interesting to see all these people in the room and, and see their different ideas about dingoes. And during that visit, I interviewed Jennifer Parkhurst, who is controversial because she was fined for feeding dingoes. She'd been observing on them on the island for about seven years and and um, fed some, uh, and she was prosecuted for that. Um, so I interviewed her, and um, we went to the island together. She offered to go to the island with me, and she doesn't get to the island very much. Um, and during that visit, I was approached by this um, young dingo who I nicknamed Bold. And then um, I read three months later that um, QPWS uh, had, the Queensland government did a press release that, you know, a dingo had been killed. And I, you know, scrambled around to try and find out whether it could have been Bold who was killed. And, uh, you know, it took about a week, but um, we worked it out that it was Bold who had been killed. So, um, there were a lot of interaction reports about him because he was a dingo that really um, didn't understand that people didn't want him to approach. He approached lots of people and um, uh, the books really draws a lot on those interaction reports because it was, uh, for me, it was a way of finding out what had happened over the last three months of his life. I, I met him when he was about 10 months old and, I mean, he was big but he was clearly young at that stage and so, you know, how how did things progress from there? Um, to result in his death. And um, six months after I interviewed Jennifer Parkhurst, I, I returned to the region and um, interviewed some Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service rangers, which was really um, valuable because I, I really wanted to have a sort of rounded view um, on the dingoes and, and the dingo management policies because it can be quite adversarial Um Dingo management can be quite adversarial across Australia and, and, and particularly on Gari, you know, um, Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service had come in for a lot of criticism and, you know, people were still very raw, I guess, about um, all the issues around the prosecution of Jennifer Parkhurst and, and of course, around the, um, around the death of Clinton Gage, the, the boy who was killed in 2001. He was only about nine or ten years old, um, so it was a terrible tragedy. And... Um, so the rangers, you know, like, to, so to try and see it from their angle, I guess, I mean, I was I was very sad that Bold had been killed, although after I met him, um, I did think it would be very hard to manage the island, you know, to try and keep dingoes separate from people on the island. And I, my daughter was seven years old at that stage, and I just thought, I don't know how I'd come here with um, my daughter and walk on the beach, because um, I was... My heart was thumping when Bold came on. I know, I know she wouldn't enjoy that experience very much. Um, so I, the people I interviewed were great. I, I interviewed an, an Aboriginal elder who um, wanted to have a close relationship with dingoes. Um, I interviewed two of the rangers from Yurong um, who had great knowledge about Bold and his family and then another who had a great sort of I guess it, not historical knowledge, but you know, from from the early two thousands, who'd been involved with dingoes from from the two thousands, so they had great hands on knowledge. I interviewed a bachelor ranger, um, and uh, which gave another angle on it from from 
the Aboriginal elder who I'd interviewed because they 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 had slightly different views on it, and um, which of course is going to be the case. Not everybody's going to be united even in the bachelor community. So I, I kind of wanted to get I guess some um, you know many voices into the the book because it it's a complex situation and um, there's no simple solution I don't think I mean I, I don't know if solutions even the right word or you know no simple way to coexist um, um, yeah, that's right. on that the point of coexisting the the I wanted to ask the dingo itself I've I think of it as an Australian native animal in some way but it's not the same you don't see pictures of dingoes in the same way you see pictures of kangaroos or koalas or even Tasmanian devils. Do you think that the dingo in the Parthenon of Australian animals is itself sort of ostracised? Yeah, well, I think that's a really good point. Um, it doesn't have the same um, role, does it? It's not a herbivore. It's a carnivore. I mean, the Tasmanian devils are carnivores, I guess, but they're not on the mainland. And and some some um, scientists think the dingo may have been responsible for the um, the extinction of the Tasmanian devil on the mainland and also the thylacine. So, you know, it's another black mark for the dingo, I guess. I mean, there, there's different views about it. Um, you know, they think, you know, others say climate change or, you know, human, human uh, populations might have contributed. Um, yes, but it's... Yeah, the dingo is controversial. Um, uh, they, they're not. They are, as you say, they're a native animal. You know, we think of them as as a as a an, an Australian animal. But whether it's because they're a predator, and um, that's a different thing from even though we've got dangerous animals like snakes and spiders. You know, the dingo is more of a challenge for humans. You know. Um, it's a competitor, I guess, because dingoes prey on sheep. So um, when humans introduce sheep and, and cows, you know, they prey on calves as well, not so much, um, I don't think, full-grown cattle. But, um, you know, so it's competing for resources with us. I think um, in my research, it, the dingoes' um, affinity with Aboriginal people definitely affected um, settler views of it, that the dingo was an ally of Aboriginal people and kin, and um, that definitely made um, white observers feel threatened and, um, you know, you can sort of see the anger <laughs> burning from the page. And, and dingoes suffered because of it. I mean, dingoes were killed because of it. Um, the first person who, the first printed use of the word dingo, which um, they think comes from the word for tame, um, was um, Watkin Tench, who was a Marine with the First Fleet, and he um, recorded an incident in which Governor Phillips' gamekeeper shot a dingo because the dingo, the dingoes tended that the Aboriginal people had dingoes, and they they let them, you know, harass the the white people, and then this this gamekeeper got cross and and shot the dingo, and um, he. A couple of years later, he was speared um, by Pemelwoy and didn't recover from that. I mean, he did a lot of other uh, bad things, this gamekeeper, but um, one of one of them was um, killing this dingo. Yeah, well, if I was going to kill someone's dingo, it wouldn't be Pemelwoy's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, in the book itself, you then, as a section in the book, I wanted to ask you as, as, a, as a sort of writer almost, is you have the section where you meet, bold and the book turns from text just having these shot after shot like you're looking at frames from a motion picture film almost and you really get the sense of this dog coming up to you and it's it's almost scary when you're reading it you not this nervousness of this interaction with this dog that has this perfect kink in its tail that just looks so dog-like could you explain how that how you came to portray this part of the story in that way Yes. Well, I was about, um, we'd seen these two brothers um, running down the beach, um, Bold and his brother. I was in a four-wheel drive with Parkhurst. Parkhurst was driving and, you know, looking through, I mean, not while she was driving, but looking through the lens of her camera to, you know, at, at these dingoes, you know, and we'd seen him follow uh, a man on the beach and stand by the door of the man's vehicle. And, um, and then 
they we you know we were driving at a distance from them and just watching what they were doing and um then they disappeared up a track and um Parkhurst stopped the car and rolled a cigarette and I got out and I was just photographing the the footprints the paw prints on the sand and then Bold came up to me and um Parkhurst had her camera there so she took these photographs and um you know let me use them in the book which was amazing because I didn't remember the incident in the same way as the photographs depict it. You know, mm. there, there's parts of the incident that I remember, but the photos, you know, I guess, you know, they don't lie. They, you know, say second by second what happened. I mean, it was a, a less than one minute incident. And I mean, there's a couple of photos that I didn't put in, but um, but they show how he came up to me and how he walked around me and um, and how he came back. And, and looked at me and then, you know, they show aspects of his posture that I didn't really notice at the time, which I think is really interesting because they're very, he was very mercurial um, and I guess all dingoes are. Um, l- later I saw footage of him. He was a bit older by that stage but he was, um, I think, some Queensland Parks surf personnel were filming him and, again, he was just very, his he changed, you know, like he was just like Quicksilver, the way he moved and and vocalised and and mouthed. So so to have those pictures was really precious because it gave me the chance to look back on the incident. I mean, I I, I remembered, you know, um, like I wrote down that you know that day what I remembered of the incident, and um, then to to go through the photographs and go, okay, well this is what happened, um, and I guess I didn't move. I was very still. Um, and he just walked away of his own accord. So the, you know, the, it was it wasn't at all a, um, you know, it was a very benign incident. He he was curious, you know, but you know, Parkhurst said afterwards, oh, I didn't know whether he was going to mouth your leg at that stage. At one point, you know, and people say don't don't turn your back on a dingo, sort of thing. I was trying to be nonchalant, <laughs> like to just look at the sky, you know, because <laughs> I'd seen the man. He followed the man, and the man had just ignored him and just kept on doing what he was doing. But, um, so I mean, I. I was really nervous, but I, I sort of saw him flinch and I thought, oh, he's really nervous too. Um, I think I could scare him away if I had to, you know, if I had to sort of be gruff and um, make a cross sort of noise at him. Um, yeah, but maybe, you know, maybe I'd misread him, you know. Um, I mean, he did end up nipping a couple of people. He he never broke their skin. One, The first person he nipped actually ran um, from him, so which is don't, don't run. I mean, you wouldn't. You know, it wouldn't be recommended to run from a dog either. But you know, mm. don't run from a dingo because that sort of activates their prey drive, their chase sort of drive. Um, the second person he nipped, it just seemed, you know, seemed to come out of the blue um, again, and and that's what precipitated him being killed. Um, that second nip. Now we, we'll have to finish up relatively soon, but I want to. There's a few more things I wanted to ask. I want to draw your attention to two parts of the book. Two just. Parts I underlined, just the way in which you've used words, and I want to ask you why you express things like this. One is after Bold has died, and you say in mid-October, around the second new moon since Bold was killed, and then the sentence goes on. Just that that expression, dating it by the second new moon, was that what was your thinking there? Well, I um, I guess I think the dingoes would be very aware of the moon, the size of the moon and the light that was coming out from it. And a lot of things happened around the new moon um, when I started to look into it. Like I was interested in the tides and where the tide was at, where the moon was at, the light, how how that affected things. And um, and so, and I started to count as well, like after Bold was killed, say in August and then September and then October, like I was counting the you know how many moons has it been since bold was killed so there i was in sydney and you know on the island you know all that distance away things were taking place so i guess the moon unifies people because you know we're all under the same moon really yeah that was good i like that the next one is is a sentence where it begins with the words i followed the shorts and long white socks of our impossibly young pilot across the tarmac to board going onto a plane here but what I want to ask about that was, this might just be me reading too much into your work, but it's almost as though, and the, the book has this in it, it's almost like the author, you've taken the dog's point of view. The dog would follow the person's socks. It's like what you're doing, but also how dogs have white socks is such a dog type thing to even have. Dogs have white socks. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's brilliant. I um, 
Yeah, I really like that. I didn't think I was taking the dog's point of view, but yes, I I find with descriptions of people, um, you can be it can be very cliched very easily to describe a person. But um, I I did notice the 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 socks, you know, the the socks of the pilot, and um, and I didn't want to look too long at his face, and I don't know whether that's. Um, whether that's uh, I'll, I'll be thinking about this afterwards you know whether that's um uh canid like behavior or not but i but i you know you can look at someone's shoes and you won't cause offense either you know mm. you can to, to sort of look someone in the eye and go oh my goodness you look about 12 and you're flying that plane over i mean you know that you might be able to read your thoughts if you um do that so i kept mm. my focus on the ground but to say it's like a dog that yeah i like that well yeah well there's some young pilot around Australia who's immortalised in a book about dingoes, so he'll be happy, I hope, or she, with the, I'm not sure who it was. And the final question I'd like you to comment on is you refer to a writer called Ugo Matai, and I've probably said his name incorrectly, but he's, he's a sort of a philosopher of some sort, and he makes this point, which the book to me is one of the main themes in the book, is that the dingo is perceived as a problem and mostly the problem has come about because we interact with the, with the animal, we feed it, we encourage it in some way because we, we look at it and then as soon as it does something that harms us, what gets changed isn't the way we react to the dingo. We might have some rules around it, but really then you can suddenly start killing dogs, shooting dogs, restricting them. How do you think about that? Yes, I was really um, uh, glad to read that. Ugo Matai article where he said that humans have come to expect to be safe wherever we go. And um, because dingoes are ostensibly killed on Gari, on, on Fraser Island, to keep people safe. I mean, um, Bold was killed because he was deemed to be a safety risk to people. Um, so to to start rethinking it and going, no, we, we don't deserve or, you know, that this thing, humans don't have to be safe wherever we go. We don't have to go around and um, kill other living things um, to keep us safe. I mean, there's a lot of problems um, with that policy of killing dingoes to keep people safe on Gari because um, it doesn't seem to, re- well, it doesn't. I mean, they've, they've published data that it doesn't reduce the number of serious incidents reported. So there doesn't seem to be any point to killing dingoes. But um yeah, and, and people hurt themselves in all sorts of other ways, you know, by driving their four-wheel drives into quicksand or, you know, getting stranded or diving into lakes or all those things. So, um, yes, this, I guess this lack of ability to um, perceive ourselves in, in the world, you know, with with other living things um, is what I hope Dingo Bolt starts to do, you know, to sort of... Um, open our eyes some more to how how our behaviour affects Mm. um, animals like dingoes. The final point I would like to talk about, and this this was just an amazing, it's toward the end of the book about the scientific science and dingoes, this idea of dingoes being used to eradicate goats on islands around Australia where the dingo might do that and then you can't get the dingo back off the island, they're pretty hard to catch. And this idea of having these time-activated poison capsules in the dogs. If a dog runs around, does its job, and it's like some sort of movie or something like Blade Runner, and then after a certain amount of time, the poison just starts flowing into its system. Mm. You you couldn't make this stuff up, no. could you? It's um, it's um, it's just so cruel. Yes, this took place um in two thousand and sixteen, I think it was that um, well, it, it and it had taken place before um, where dingoes were put on an island to eradicate the goats. But in the earlier case, in the early 90s, the dingoes then um, stayed on the island and they couldn't get rid of the dingoes. So this time they decided to put a poison capsule of 1080, which causes a horrific slow death and um, of very little. They didn't know how these capsules w- would work. Um, they didn't know the effects but they you know this it was meant to so the, these two dingoes were caught on the mainland and transported to an island um and then they went to work to eradicate the goats and 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 um the organizers of that uh project um rated it as a success 
too. The capsules didn't work <laughs> the way the, the dingoes lived for much longer than um, they were expected to and um, the goats were eradicated but a lot of them were shot as well. Like it was uh, um, they because there was such a controversy about the dingoes, the, the organisers were ordered to take the dingoes off the island. So there was a, um, a bit of an effort to go in and try and find them, which mm. they couldn't do. Um, so during, the, you know, during those um, attempts, they did shoot a lot of goats. But, um, yes, uh, I'm, I'm sure that and, – and what is deeply troubling, I think, is that um, some of the organisers of this um, – this project to eradicate the goats are also um, very involved with the Fraser Island Dingo Conservation and and Risk Management Strategy. So they've they're advising Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service about how to um, manage the dingoes, and but they have this very inhumane attitude, I guess, um, towards dingoes rather than trying to see it from a dingoes point of view or um, what would a dingo want. Um, it's very much dingoes as um, you know, as these kind of pest animals or these disposable um, beings. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you for that. It's a wonderful book, Dingo Bold. It's available through Sydney University Press. It's, I think it's available at the moment. It's, come, it's been released. Yes. yes, it's in the shops now. You can order it. It's, it's, a, it's a great survey of, the, of dingoes, of humans, of people, so much about this, this animal. Now, Rowena, before you go, could you please let the audience know what you're working on next, what your next literary plans are? <laughs> oh, um, I'm still writing about dingoes. Um, uh, I'm, I've been working on that um, project uh, in, in a, uh, a couple of academic articles coming out about um, uh, the, the dingoes on the island with the, with the goats. Um and um, dingoes and decolonisation as well to try and link, you know, um, how how dingoes relationships of dingoes with a with a, with a indigenous perspectives, um, which is hard because I'm non-indigenous, so um, I have a lot to learn. And I've also been um, I I've been writing about a shipwreck, so I'm very interested in um, tales of life at sea at the moment. Uh, I don't know what the next long form project will be. These are shorter pieces, you know, essays, mm. and and of course, you know, there's always the novella on the back burner that, <laughs> 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 when, which you know, I'll I'll get back to it. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much, Rowena, for coming in today. Oh, thank you, B. No, my pleasure, and thank you for listening, everyone. Please feel free to place a review wherever you pick up this podcast from. And this has been Bede Haynes on the Australian and New Zealand channel for the New Books Network talking with Rowena Lennox about Dingo Bold. Thank you.